How you guys doing? Okay? Yeah, I heard some whoop, 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 yeah, okay. I know it's cold. Hey, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Dave Orweller, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm excited to be here to continue the sermon series on the Kings. Um, I don't pretend to be a deep philosopher, but I think every one of us is looking for something. And I'll go another step. You're like, yep, yep, I can track with that. I think every one of us is looking for a king. And that I might have lost you right there. Some of you are like, I don't know if I'm looking for a king. I think there's a desire deep within us, in our souls. I think we spend a good chunk of our lives and our energy and our resources trying to find a worthy king, a king who will protect us, provide for us, we can trust. That's why I love this sermon series, because our hope as we look at the kings is pretty simple. One, that we just learn about this period of the Old Testament, see what God was doing there. We'd see how it fits into the greater story of the Bible. But specifically, we'd see how each king of Israel points us to our need for Jesus, the only king who will never let us down. And I think if we're honest, we'll see a bit of ourselves in each one of these kings that we look at. I don't know if you were tracking with Saul last week. He's a man of insecurity and pride, and I can relate in so many ways. We're going to get into a new king this morning, King Solomon, but before we do, I just want to pray, ask God to speak to us through his story this morning. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for this chance we have to come together and um, turn our our attention toward you and our our hearts toward you and, and to listen to you, and we just thank you for the spirit of the kings, and we thank you for Solomon and just using his life uh, to speak to us, and we, we just want to invite you to do that this morning. We want to not just hear about a king from long ago, but we want to know what you're trying to speak to us through his life this morning. We pray you do that. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, if you were here last week, you know that Vivek gave us a quick recap about what led to this period of time in the Old Testament that way back God chose Abraham and he promised to bless him, grow his family into a great nation and give him the promised land to settle in and he would be their God and they would be his people and unlike all the other nations around them, they would have no human king because he would lead them and provide them and protect them uniquely. That was what was on his heart as they settled in the promised land. But as time went on, Instead of following and trusting him, they rejected him as a king. They wanted a a human king. And even though that wasn't what God wanted, he allowed them to do that, which is pretty crazy in and of itself if you think about it. But he did actually even more than that. I want to show you a passage from the law from Deuteronomy 17. Before the Israelites even entered the promised land, God anticipated this time when he was giving Moses the law. He gave a section of the law that applied to the kings of Israel that would come later on. I'm going to show you what it says. It says this, you're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king, the man, as king, the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up large, a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. 
The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction, the law, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he'll learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all these terms and these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he was above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. I don't know if you're tracking with me, but this is a big deal, right? Even in the midst of their rejection, God knows, he anticipates it, and he still wants to help them come alongside of them. He's not giving up on them. And so he wrote this piece of law to protect to protect them and instruct the kings. And this is what we learn from this section. It's obviously not all that complicated. God should be choosing the kings. And there's three things specifically kings are not to do. And one thing they're specifically to do, essentially. Don't acquire horses, wives, silver and gold, but meditate on God's law day in and day out. That's keeping it pretty simple, right? A little side note here is those instructions, they're actually a really great filter for any time you're reading through this period of the kings in the Old Testament to see, is this king following the Lord? Is he pleasing the Lord? Is he doing what the Lord wants him to do? We're going to come back to this section a little bit later on. For now, just file that away. That was God's protection for the kings as they head into this time. So anyway, they reject God as their king and they appoint their first human king. Saul becomes king. Last week, we looked at Saul after Saul's death, David took over as king. And some of you are wondering, why are we skipping David? Just, he gets a lot of attention all the other times. So we thought, you know what? We can summarize and move on. So that's what we're going to do. David took over as king, though, and at first, it was as if David could do no wrong, right? He was a man of faith. He was brave, victorious in battle, a man after God's own heart. God even makes a covenant with him and promises him an everlasting throne through his descendants. But much like Saul, the second half of his reign is marked by sin and character issues that lead to some really sad and horrible consequences, both for him and for the whole nation. But even in spite of the sin and evil done by these first two kings of Israel, we're left with hope moving forward. God is still at work behind the scenes. Israel has peace with their neighbors more so than they have maybe ever. And because of God's covenant with David, there's hope that Solomon and his son, his son, would be the kind of king that God wanted. So this morning, we're going to walk through Solomon's life and see, is he, was he the kind of king God wanted, okay? Ready to walk through his life? So David dies, Solomon becomes king, and not long after his reign has been established, we see God step in, working behind the scenes once more. He appears to Solomon in a dream. It says that Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the local places of worship. The most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon, so the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what do you want? Ask and I'll give it to you. Okay, so first, it's a good report of Solomon at the beginning, right? He loved the Lord, he followed in his Father David's footsteps. And so God comes to Solomon with this question as he's a new king. 
What do you want? It's almost as if God didn't know how to begin with Solomon, so he started with an icebreaker, right? If you could ask for one thing, what would it be? Some of us have thought about how we would answer that question if God was to ask. This is a pivotal moment for Solomon. Solomon's answer is going to reveal a lot about what kind of king he is or what kind of king he wants to be. Says Solomon replied, you showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they can't be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? So Solomon is humble. And when God gives him that classic one-wish question, he asks not for long life or wealth or the death of his enemies or the cedars of Lebanon, which apparently were awesome back then, (laughs) but for wisdom. And did you catch why he said in there, in order to lead God's people. If you look carefully at his response, he says over and over, your people, your people, your people. He knows that this is not his kingdom. It's God's kingdom. God had made him king for a reason, and it was to serve, and he wanted to serve. As we keep reading, it says, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you've asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I'll give you what you asked for. I'll give you a wise and understanding heart such that no one else has, had, or ever will have. And I'll also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and commands as your father David did, I'll give you a long life. So God is faithful to his promise. He blesses Solomon really beyond expectations. The kingdom grows and flourishes. Really, in a lot of ways, this ushers in a golden age for the nation of Israel. But that's not all. In the next chapter, actually chapter five, we see this. It says, King Hiram of Tyre had always been a loyal friend of David. When Hiram learned that David's son Solomon was the new king in Israel, he sent ambassadors to congratulate him. Then Solomon sent this message back to Hiram. You know that my father David was not able to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord as God because of the many wars waged against him by surrounding nations. He could not build until the Lord gave him victory over all his enemies. But now the Lord, my God, has given me peace on every side, I have no enemies and all is well. So I'm planning to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord, my God, just as he instructed my father David. For the Lord told him, your son, whom I will place on your throne, will build the temple to honor my name. So not only is the kingdom growing and flourishing, but Solomon sets his sight on honoring God and his father David by building this temple. Since the time of the Exodus, the tabernacle was really the focus of worship in Israel, It's where the priest ministered, sacrifices were made, prayers were offered, the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where God's tangible presence was there with his people. But the tabernacle was a tent. It worked great as the Israelites were wandering around in the desert. They would would pack it up, carry it to the next camp, set it back up, and then resume worship there. 
But at some point after settling in the promised land, David realized, hey, wait a minute, this is kind of messed up. We've settled here, we have peace, and I live in a palace. But the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is, is still in a tent. So he wanted to build a permanent house for God. And God was pleased with David's desire, but he said, it's not you, it's going to be your son Solomon who will build this temple. So Solomon goes about the work of building this temple early on in his reign. And he spares no expense. He gets the best materials, the best workers, and takes as much time as he needs to build this temple. It actually took seven years. It's his greatest endeavor at first as king. At some point along the way, he decides to also build a palace complex for himself and for the queen and a place to make rulings and judgments. And that takes another 13 years. So over the course of 20 years, both, both the palace and the temple, they're, they're completed. They move the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. They begin, that's the center of worship in Israel. And this is really the peak of the kingdom of Israel. God's blessing, it's all come together. And once again, what we see is God is at work behind the scenes in this pivotal time. In 1 Kings 9, it says this, So Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had done before at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy, this place you have built where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it's dear to my heart. As for you... If you will follow me with integrity and godliness as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father David, one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the commands and decrees I have given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot Israel from this land that I have given them. I'll reject this temple that I've made holy to honor my name. I'll make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled and gasp in horror. They'll ask, why did the Lord do such a terrible thing to this land and this temple? And the answer will be because his people abandoned their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and they worshiped other gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why the Lord brought all these disasters on them. Okay, so the Lord comes to Solomon a second time. This time it's a little different, right? No new wishes. This time he basically says, thanks for building this temple. I appreciate it. It's dear to me. I love it. But now let's talk about you. And the rest of what God says is like a warning. If you follow me, I'll be with you and bless you. But if you abandon me, I won't, and it'll lead to destruction for you and the whole nation. This time there's no response recorded for Solomon. But if we read the next few chapters, it describes what he did as king. And uh, we don't have that time to read them all, but I just want to basically summarize right immediately from there. This is what we see. We see a list of Solomon's achievements, the things that he built and the things that he did and how amazing the kingdom was. It talks about how he was so impressive. He impressed the queen of Sheba. And then very carefully, for a couple of chapters, it lists out the things that he accumulates. Excessive wealth, horses and chariots, and many wives. Those three things should stand out to you from that passage in the law we read earlier, right? 
Those were the three specific things that God said, don't accumulate a lot of these things. And by this point in the story, we have to be asking ourselves, what in the world, what happened to Solomon? He started out so well in humility, wanting to serve, wanting to build God's kingdom, but somehow now he's at this point where he's doing the very simple things that God said not to do. Why do you think God picked those things, those three things? Like if I was going to come up with a list for a king, those aren't going to make the list, at least not now. Those were the common visible sources of provision, protection, and security that a king would be prone to trust in instead of God. Horses and chariots. Chariots meant military strength, wives of royal birth meant political alliances, right? Security. Cash money meant cash money. (laughs) We can relate to that one. God wanted to protect the kings from going after other gods, from trusting in other kings and serving them. Whether they were called Ashtoreth or Chemoth or Molech or horses, wives, and gold. So with Solomon, it may not be clear exactly when, it's kind of hard to tell, but it probably happened slowly, but at some point, he drifted and his heart was turned away from God. By the end of his life, he was proud. Instead of serving God, he served himself. Instead of leading the nation to serve God, he required the nation to serve him. He was probably the most served man on the planet. Instead of building God's kingdom, it was all about him. And so if we keep reading in 1 Kings 11, it shows us really the end for Solomon, the consequences. It says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, which are like secondary wives. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, his father, as his father David had been. The Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord and the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I'll take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem my chosen city. Solomon's pride and disobedience led to some intense moral failure and just plain evil idolatry. Not only was he sinning against God, but he was using his position to lead the entire nation to do the same. So God promised to tear the kingdom away from him, but because of his promise to David, it wouldn't happen in his lifetime, but in the lifetime to come. It's really the beginning of the end of the kingdom. It's the beginning of the the downfall and, and of really the time of the kings. In a very short time, the kingdom would splinter and descend into deep moral decay 
and eventually lead to their conquer and exile as slaves in other lands. That's really the story of Solomon as king. So what, what in the world should we take from this, right? We're not kings, and we're not Solomon. We live in a different time, a different place. I just want to give you a couple things as we wrap up this morning. When Israel first cried out for a human king and God gave them a king, the stipulations were pretty clear. God will choose the king, and the king should obey God. God would still be leading his people, just working through a human king. So in a lot of ways, as we read through the kings, one of the main questions we should be asking is, is God leading? Is this king following God, his leadership, or not? Who's really leading here? Who's really king? I think it's a good question to ask throughout Solomon's life, right? We'd answer that question probably differently at different times. And I think it's a good question for us to wrestle with too. Who's really king? And I think some of what is beautiful about Solomon's life is it, it brings up, it reveals three really important questions that we can ask that help us discern who's really king in our hearts. The first one is this, we're just gonna steal from God. It's the question God asked Solomon. What do you want? Think about your roles and relationships or some sphere of influence that you have in your life that God has given to you. Maybe you're a teacher, an engineer, or you have influence with friends or classmates. You get the idea. Wherever God has placed you, what do you want in that role? And I don't want to know the right answer, if there is one, but just the real one, what's on your heart? What do you, what do you really want? What are you looking for in that role? I think it's a great question for us to wrestle with as we begin a new role, right? That's why God asked Solomon this. As I head into this internship or this job, what do I want here? Am I thinking about my kingdom or God's kingdom? As I head into this marriage, what do I really want? As I head into some leadership position, what do I really want? Our answer reveals a lot about what's going on in our hearts, who's king in our hearts. So what about you this morning? What do you really want? And what does that show you about who's king in your heart? The second question is this. What or who do you trust? Maybe a better way to say it is, what have you placed your trust in? Or maybe you could say, what are your chariots and horses or wives or stacks of cash? We can make ourselves king, true enough. The first question kind of gets at that. Are we the king? This question sort of hits on all the other things out there, all of the would-be kings that are ready to reign if we give them our trust. Do you know what those things are for you in life? More money, status, power, relationships. I'm not sure what it is. I don't know what's most appealing to you. I know that probably no one here owns a horse, but I know there's a lot of people in pursuit of flush bank accounts 
and prestigious degrees and titles. And listen to me, okay? Those are great things. God gives those things. There's nothing wrong with those things unless you've given them your trust. Then they're sitting on the throne. God told the kings of Israel, don't go there. Don't go there. Even if you can, even if they make you feel safe, even if you can see them and touch them, even if all the people around you are doing that and they think you're crazy for not doing that, don't go there. It's a trap. Not only do they lack the power to save, but they'll pull your heart away from the true king. So what about you? Who or what are you trusting in right now? And what does that reveal to you about who is your king? The final question is this. Who do you follow? Maybe this is just follows the other two questions. But when we look at Solomon's life, we can, we can easily see when he goes off course, right? God said, don't accumulate horses. At some point, it's pretty clear. He's accumulating horses. He's crowned a new king. God said, don't accumulate wives. Same thing. We might be the only one who really knows in our heart what we're really trusting in. But that leads to who we follow, and that becomes pretty evident in the life that we live, who we're following and obeying and serving. So what about you? Who do you follow? Who are you following? And what does that say about who's king in your heart? You know, Solomon is... Uh, an interesting story because he was like the most powerful man on the planet for a time. So he could do anything that was humanly possible. He just throw his piles of cash at it and make it happen. And you see this in his story. When he began as king, God was on the throne of his heart. He wanted to honor God. He trusted God. He followed God. He obeyed him. But over time, he allowed for rival kings. I'm sure it was slow and subtle. It always is. But at some point, it actually became clear he's not just allowing for other rival kings. He has launched an all-out, spare-no-cost search to find the very best king. And if we're honest, some of us, we're in the exact same situation, aren't we? We're, we're trying to answer that question. Who can I trust to protect me and provide for me? Me? Horses? Wives? Riches? Whatever. Solomon wrote a book, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's basically about this search. Here's the gist of the book. He searched far and wide and explored every rival king you could imagine and found that they are all empty. Vanity, says over and over. I found that it was vanity. So this is his conclusion, basically. Enjoy the good blessings in your life, but don't make them king. They're lousy kings. Serve God, the one true king. And we have the awesome benefit of living on the other side of history. We know that Jesus is that one true king. The king God promised would come. The king our souls have been looking for. A righteous and just king, a merciful king, a powerful king, the perfect king. That's the only kind of king we want to serve. 
It's the only kind we can trust, the only kind we should follow. Jesus is that king. I pray this week, wherever we're at with Jesus, whatever we believe about him, whether we've been following him as our king for a long time or we're not sure what we believe, that we could take those three questions and just think about them for us right now in my life. If there's one thing that's clear about Solomon's story, it's we can start off well and drift. So wherever we're at, who is king? Have you chosen a worthy king? I pray that more and more our answer is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and our chance to come together turn our attention to you and listen to you and look at Solomon's life and just kind of the crazy story that he lived and thank you for the lessons we can take from it. Thank you that it shows us how merciful and faithful you are to us, that even when we reject you, you're at work. You're still trying to protect us and provide for us and warn us. God, we pray that You'd give us clarity as we look into our own hearts to see who really is king. We pray you'd convict us of just how lousy all the other potential kings are and how worthy of a king Jesus is. We pray that you'd help us desire to serve you. You'd help us trust you. You'd help us follow you because that's what you do with the king. We pray this in your name, amen.